I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me today is author and attorney Annette Hines. Uh, her new book is Butterflies and Second Chances, a mom's memoir of love and loss. Over the past two decades, the number of children with chronic health conditions doubled from 12.8% in 1994 to 26.6% in 2006. Not only can taking care of a child with a disability seem like an insurmountable task for a parent, but making sure their child has a secure future when they are no longer there can seem daunting as well. Annette Hines is a powerhouse advocate for the special needs community where these families uh, comprise 80% of her firm's clients. She brings personal experience with special needs to her practice as the mother of two daughters, one of whom passed away from mitochondrial disease in November 2013. Uh, Annette Hines has been practicing in the areas of special needs, elder law, and estate planning for over 20 years. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Annette. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm so happy to be here talking about my family and my practice. Well, first, let's start. It all it really it all began with Elizabeth, your daughter, who was born with special needs. So let's start with Elizabeth, because I think one of the things you say in the book is uh, after after the birth of Elizabeth, and when you realize that she perhaps had special needs. Um, you talk about mourning the loss of the child you'll never have. So let, let, let's begin with that. Yeah, I think um, so many families that I've met along the way talk about this grieving process that you go through um, over and over again for all the things that you'll never experience when you have a child with special needs. And it's, it, it just keeps hitting you um, for, for all of those milestones that never come. When Elizabeth was born, I mean, you were excited. Let's, from the beginning, pregnant, uh, first child. She was your first. Uh, take, let's start the story. What, what, you, we had a normal pregnancy, not normal pregnancy. Did, yeah. did not have a normal pregnancy. Um, she wasn't growing. I went on bed rest at 20 weeks, which is definitely not a normal thing to do. Um, didn't have a lot of explanations. The doctors were not really telling me a lot. I found out, you know, much, much later that it was more because they didn't really know what was going on. Um, but being a very young mom um, and this being my first baby, I didn't realize that um, I should have been asking more questions. And it was my first journey into learning how to be a good advocate. Um, and that's one of the things I explore a lot in the book is, learning how to be a good advocate for myself and then later for my, my whole family. Um, so going on bed rest and then eventually having a 29-week, very small preemie baby, um, which um, spent nine weeks in the NICU um, and being separated from her for so long, that was the beginning of a very strange and, and uh, unique journey into motherhood for us. And it's obviously, I think, as you describe in the book, it's, it's, it's a surprise. I mean, because I think in the beginning, uh, most mothers or many mothers expect everything's going to go well and I'm going to have a normal baby and um, none of what you experienced really is something that is one can predict. So you had the, your baby in the NICU, which in itself is a... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. It's, it's, it's just a, such a overwhelmingly 
stressful time, um, as you say, separated yeah. from your baby, um, you know, being in you the You don't get to for- hold them. There's a lot of wires and tubes and things, and um, you don't you don't really get to bond in the way that you expect. You don't get to nurse them. You don't get to feed them. You don't get to bathe them. Um, you know, you don't get to take them home. You have to leave the hospital without your child. It's bizarro land. Yeah. So that's an auspicious beginning. Now, when you brought Elizabeth home, when you were finally able to bring her home, I think you said she was only four and a half pounds. Um, right. Yeah, that's tiny. Yes. Yeah. She slept in this little teeny basket. Uh, she wasn't big enough for a regular crib yet. And um, we we took pictures of her in this little uh, baby basket. Um, it was something um, like out of a, a picture from a magazine. Um, and I was terrified. I couldn't go to sleep. I was terrified something was going to happen to her. I didn't really know how to take care of her yet. Uh, it was, but but I loved her so much already. I was just so in love with this little baby that I had brought home, and I thought that everything was going to be fine because we had gotten over this horrible thing that had happened to us, and now everything was going to be okay. So at what point did you begin to realize, and I think with parents, and uh, there's a some denial because you're always looking, are they, you know, doing the right developmental kinds of things they should be doing at each stage? Um, uh, and if they're not, there's concern, but, you know, parents usually are, well, you know, uh, there's a wide range of what's normal and what's not normal. So at what point did you begin to feel maybe things aren't quite right with Elizabeth? I was this crazy overachiever, so I just thought if I read all the right books and I just followed the checklist um, that everything was going to be okay. It wasn't until my mom came to visit me, because my family was not living in the same state, um, that all my fears were, were you know, recognized. Um, she wasn't sitting up, she couldn't hold her head up, and she was, you know nine months old at that point. Um, and they kept telling me, well, she's a preemie. She's not going to meet her milestones at the same rate as other babies. But the look on my mom's face just told me everything. I, I just knew that the things that I had been worried about were really true. And then she had a seizure. Um, but I, I brought her into the doctor's office and was trying to describe what I was seeing, and they kept telling me it was reflux, it was this, it was that. And they just kept telling me that I was this new mom worrying about nothing. And finally, she had a seizure in front of them. And that was, that was it. You know, so it took it to that. She had to have a seizure in front of the physician for him or her to take you seriously. That's right. So the that's frustration, right. I mean, that don't you think that's, that's um, here we're talking about children with disabilities, there's always that frustration, this was the beginning for you, but uh, those kinds of frustrations, uh, maybe with medical personnel, because I know a lot of stuff, obviously, that you describe in the book uh, that's not unique to you, unfortunately, um, happens in these kinds, they don't believe mother or they don't want to believe it or even sometimes you know doctors want to they're into denial as well um so that's kind of a continuing kind of reaction i think isn't it 
Yes, I spent a lot of my time as an attorney um, teaching families how to become a very good advocate because, you know, you can't always have an attorney or an advocate at your side. So you need to learn how to be a good communicator, be a good advocate for yourself because there is this sense in the medical community of disbelieving the patient. Um, And I don't think that we even today have learned really well how to, you know, work together as a team for people's good health, you know, and I think it's important that we really get on the same page with each other um, and learn how to share information and ideas for people's good health. So, and we probably um, should talk about Elizabeth's thing. diagnosis, too, what she was finally diagnosed, what, what her final diagnosis was. And because given that diagnosis, as you say, uh, you had to speak for someone who can't speak for themselves. And that's f- quite daunting. Um, that's a big responsibility, especially when it's your daughter. So um, the diagnosis, because I, I mentioned it in the beginning, what is... If, if you are diagnosed with mitochondrial, uh, with that uh, disease, what is it? Well, it's kind of like saying that you have autism. It means different things to, you know, different people. There's a wide spectrum. Um, and back then it was a newer diagnosis. So um, we weren't really sure what that meant, honestly. Um, she had one of the worst uh, kinds of, um, mito um, defects, unfortunately for her. And when you get them as children, they are um, life-limiting, which it was for her, and they do impact all the systems in the body. So the, the mitochondria, if you know anything about your biology, are the little uh, fuel systems that feed your cells. So if your cell's not getting fuel, then your systems in your body start to die. So they feed your brain and they feed your muscles and they feed your gut. And so for her, you know, she had a brain injury um, because when she was in utero, you know, it was one of the reasons she was a preemie. She, you know, wasn't getting what she needed for her brain to form properly. And then she had trouble with her GI system and she couldn't walk. She was in a wheelchair and she couldn't see. She was blind. So she couldn't speak because of the injury in her brain. And so it impacted pretty much every system in her body. And eventually she got so weak she couldn't swallow. And that's what happened to her. She started to get pneumonia and it just weakened her body so much that her poor little body just gave out. So that for her was how the mitochondrial defects impacted her system. For other people, you know, it's their heart. Um, So it does really kind of depend on the mitochondrial impact that they're having. As as, as Elizabeth's mother and and as at some point a single mom, trying to take care of all the, taking care of Elizabeth and then getting pregnant again with your second daughter, Caroline. Woohoo. <laughs> How did you handle <laughs> all of this? And talk specifically about, because you do this in the book so well, the things that maybe just the uh, person who hasn't had that experience 
uh, with a child with disabilities doesn't really realize all the, the, the things that, that you have to overcome when you have your daughter in a wheelchair. I mean, it, it you know, it goes on and on. But um, just, you know, taking care of a healthy child is a challenge. So this is at an, in another realm. Um, so since you read the book, you know that I didn't do it all so well. It wasn't Well, perfect. I wouldn't say that. I think you did. <laughs> You're only human. You did it well. I think the great thing about the book is, Annette, that you were able to talk about, okay, I made these mistakes, but parents make mistakes no matter what. So right. there's, yeah, and, and sort of because I think a lot of people can identify with probably what you consider your mistakes, probably more with those than the things that you did do well. So let, let's talk about those. Because it's, yeah. Well, I think the um, the focus for me was really just trying to be present for my kids. And again, I don't know if I did everything that I could have, but I really tried. And one of the things that I learned a lot about having Baby number two was how important it was to have some time with her. It was really healing for me, um, and I'm so grateful to her for giving me that opportunity to have that mothering experience with her. Man, I really needed that. Um, But also, just I learned so much about, you know, what she needed as the sibling of this very, very sick and very disabled kid. Um, and, and it's really helped me, you know, pass that on to other families, too. You know, she really needs that independent time. She needed to be her own person, separate and apart from Elizabeth. Um, so, you know, we learned those lessons together. Um, so if there's one thing that I can tell other parents, if you have other children besides your disabled kid, make sure that they have their own life, too. And make sure that they have their quiet time with you separate and apart. You have to do family things together for sure. Um, and you have, to, you have to live your life um, not just about the disability. There has to be just those times you go to the beach or those times that you go on a vacation or those times that you just have, you know, Sunday dinner or whatever your family traditions are. So I think... In answer to your question, that's kind of how I survived. We just did our family things. We were just a family like anybody else. Yeah, I I think you're, but a unique family, like a family like anybody else, but also, I mean, all of the unique qualities to your family, given the circumstances, because you do talk about Caroline, and I think this uh, does happen with um, when you have one child who has disability and the other is a healthy child. Uh, sometimes you focus, you, and you have to focus more attention on the, the you know, on your child with a disability because there's always things happening and unpredictable things and medical and all of that. And the other one can get lost and, and, and sort of get lost in the shuffle as much as you try. Um, and you have to be, I guess, aware of those issues, which is also what you talk about in the book. What about I mean, some of healthcare people, one of the things I liked, you had some support from social workers. I'm a social worker, so that was, that was sort of reassuring. But yeah. a lot of the, uh, home health aides and other people, even in hospital, not so helpful. Talk about that. Yeah. 
Well, it was a mixed bag. You know, the nurses, you know, could be great and uh, sometimes not so much so. So it really depended on the circumstances. Um, You know, occasionally there would be people who would take advantage of the desperation and the, the crisis that you were in and be looking for opportunities. Um, Or sometimes the people who worked for the state agencies, for example, that time that I had a newer case manager who worked for a state agency who would bring their healthy child to their appointments with me and not understand how upsetting that would be for me to watch this child running around my house you know, um, when I'm trying to have an appointment with them and trying to talk to them about the the things that I needed from the organization, you know, a few dollars here and there for equipment and this and that. And it, it, it you know, why wouldn't this person understand that that just wasn't okay? And why should I have to advocate for myself to not have that happen? That should be something that was understood. So, yeah. You know, there a lot of things like that would come up. I think one of the things I learned that I didn't realize and, and that you uh, mentioned in the book or brought up in the book was that sometimes the people who come to your house, people who work uh, part-time, who work in people's homes, maybe have substandard training, uh, are not as professional, which ties in with what you're saying, as those who work in hospital because the, the sort of the cream of the crop works in hospitals or institutions because they have better pay and they That's also right. get better, yeah, uh, you know, they get insurance, they get other perks um, so that you're, it seems to me, if you have a child with disabilities who is at home, then you're kind of fighting against that too. Or it's, um, That's right. We yeah, had a quality nurse of come care. to our house. Yeah, we had a nurse come to our house one time who dropped a, a syringe, a, a needle on the floor and was about to take it and put, put it to my daughter's central line. Like, just, you, you, I mean, even an untrained person like me would know that you can't do that. That was, that was not sterile anymore. Um, you know, you would never do that in a hospital, obviously, but things like that would happen in a home setting. And that's because, you know, in a hospital, they'd make $60 an hour effectively to the $30 an hour in a home setting. Um, And so what the home care companies can get are just the leftovers, the people who don't cut it in a hospital or for whatever reason, you know, are just kind of attracted to home care because they can call out sick whenever they want and never get fired, you know, that kind of thing. Now, things are changing slowly, but what, because... Uh, yeah, let's talk about what year, because that was different. Um, uh, you know, we're talking about what, in the 90s, actually, right? Mm-hmm. It's still really hard if you talk to anybody who relies on home care to stay in the community rather than live an institutional life, they'll tell you that they have difficulty finding home care for their disabled folks or their elder folks. Yeah, that, yeah you bring elder folks up because uh, I think this is something else you talk about, like that comparing uh, taking care of like a child with disabilities is the same as taking care of somebody who's elderly, but it's not 
in your home, but it's not exactly the same. It's it's different. And um, what are those differences? The differences are generally in who's paying for the care and if you have the resources to privately pay versus relying on Medicaid as a provider, um, you know, that can make a big difference. You're talking about quality of care. Right, because if you're the employer, you can train and you can dictate what you want people to do. If Medicaid is your payer, then you have the rates dictated and the rules dictated to you. So you're in two you're you're in two different functional sets of rules and requirements. So it gets very complicated. Annette, let's talk about we only have a few minutes left. So where did your I guess I'm gonna say solace or your support come from? I mean you Peer relationships, connecting to other people, connecting to families who also have children with disabilities, because you did make those kinds of connections. Definitely, um, I will say that I've been so fortunate in my life. Um, Elizabeth, um, being the love of my life, has brought the most wonderful people to me. And because of that, because of the connections that I've been able to make, because of this wonderful work that she's led me to, I have been sustained and, you know, I've been able to go on and, um, and today I'm just really fulfilled with what I do. Um, and she's with me every day and I do really feel lucky that I have that. And I, I feel I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that I was able to get this book out and be able to use these experiences to, I hope, continue to touch people. I remember feeling so lonely back in the early days, and I hope that this, this, this message will help somebody not feel that way. I hope that it touches somebody. Well, I, I, it touched me, and uh, I think that one of the, maybe you've said it, I don't want to repeat it, but Elizabeth died when she was 17, but she's, Still with you because of all that, well, all you did for her, but also now we're all going back to law school. Um, I mean, you're obviously not just bright, but strong and motivated person. So you kind of carry on uh, the work um, and and sort of extending all that you did for Elizabeth to everyone else uh, through your through your legal practice, obviously. So tell us couple minutes left. Tell us about the legal practice that you, I mean, just if, if one wants to contact you, um, how do they do that? Um, and are there resources, websites uh, they can go to? They can buy your book at Amazon, I assume, online? Yeah, so yeah. the book has been selling great, and um, it's definitely connected with a lot of people. Um, as you know, disabilities are non-discriminatory. They hit um, everybody. You mentioned the, um, the percentages are escalating over the last two decades, and um, 
So the book is on Amazon, and you can get it um, in paperback and um, hardcover, and also as an ebook. Um, and you can go to our website; it's specialneedscompanies.com. And that will also connect you to all of the things that we do, including our law firm. Um, We are a law firm, but we also do much more than that. We do care management and we do trust administration. We do all things special needs here. So we do hope to connect people with all the services that they need. In fact, we are a firm that I would have really loved to have had when my children were little. I am trying to create something that, um, you know, my family really, really needed when my family was young. And, well, Annette um, Hines, I have to say goodbye. I could, uh, okay. but I want to, <laughs> uh, attorney and also author of Butterflies and Second Chances, a mom's memoir, memoir of love and loss. Thanks so much for being Thank on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 